Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Our guest today is Luke Harding, a British journalist and a veteran foreign correspondent for The Guardian. Luke has reported from wars in Libya, in Afghanistan, and Iraq, from American elections to refugee camps in Calais. But there is one subject he keeps returning to, Russia. Luke lived in Russia in the late 2000s, and he's reported on the activities of the Russian government's intelligence services for more than a decade. In that time, they have carried out numerous assassinations, interfered with elections in the US and in Europe, and expanded their clandestine activities across the world. Their actions, Luke says, are growing increasingly bold. Luke's latest book, Shadow State, released to wide acclaim in 2020, aims to shine a light on the dark and murky world of Russia's expansive intelligence apparatus. Luke Harding, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you, Faisal. Shadow State is not your first book about Russia, not by a long shot. Uh, You've reported from many different countries, many different subjects, but you keep coming back to the subject of Russia. I wonder why does Russia hold such a fascination for you, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I wrote a, a, a memoir come uh, portrait of, of Putin's Russia, uh, soon after I got kicked out in 2011, a decade ago. Um, and I sort of thought that that was it, you know, I wasn't going to do any more Russia books. Uh, and then, of course, um, one of the stories I tracked there was about the murder in 2006 of Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian mm-hmm. dissident, famously poisoned with radioactive tea. Um, and I became good friends with his widow, Marina. Um, then in 2015, there was an extraordinary kind of public inquiry where we, we we found out everything about the assassins, really. The fact that they were incompetent, that they were maligned, that they'd been sent by the Kremlin to, to poison someone whom uh, Putin personally disliked and regarded as a traitor. So that, that became another book and a very expensive poison and, and actually a, then a sort of hit stage play in London. Uh, and then I thought, yeah, no, I, I really am done now. And, and then, of course, Donald Trump became president of the United States in 2016 with Russian assistance. And we, mm. we can debate how much and whether it was consequential and so on. But it's pretty clear to everyone, apart from a hardcore group of denialists, that there was a large, wide-ranging um, espionage campaign to, to help install him in the White House. And then mm. I thought, you know, I really, really am done now. And then, of course, Sergei Skripal, got murdered in the spring of 2018 in, in what was a, a sort of copycat Litvinenko-style plot with, with two different assassins flying into the UK from Moscow and using a similarly esoteric and lethal nerve agent to try and kill someone whom the, 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 the Kremlin uh, hated. Um, and and that that is the opening of Shadow State, really, which so it's an attempt to sort of pull together these multifarious strands of... of Russian intelligence work, which ranged from traditional retro neo-Cold War style um, snuffing out of of, of, pe- of people the, Kre- the Kremlin uh, loathes yeah. to to more kind of 21st century techniques of political subversion um, and um, uh, sabotage, such as uh, impersonation on Facebook, trolling. And so on. So, so it's a big, big canvas, and and it's it's exciting and it's dark, and, it and is. it's alarming. I mean, in those ten years, I mean, it's you know, you started off writing about Russia inside Russia, but actually, that story has gone global. Certainly, with the the Trump presidency, it's been put center stage on what the uh, the uh, the security services in Russia are intending. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And also, I sort of draw on my experience in Russia. I mean, I mean, it's sort of in a way, I kind of saw the the domestic show before, you know, Putin went on the road, which is not to say that, that you know, Russian espionage has, has I mean, it's always been been international, it's always been global facing. And there was a sort of period of, you might call sort of disarray when when the KGB and its successor, the FSB, SVR, Russian foreign intelligence was on the back foot. But with Putin, we've really seen Russia turn into the world's preeminent spy state. Um, and, and to be clear, I don't argue in shadow state that Putin is an all-seeing, all-knowing supervillain, uh, like something out of a kind of Bond movie, who who presses a button and then things happen in in, in Damascus or or Africa or or Eastern Europe. Mm. He's basically a sort of classic KGB opportunist, and what what he's done over the past two decades is do these these increasingly bold deeds, whether it's assassinations in London or wars in his soviet backyard um like like georgia which i reported on in 2008 and he waits for a response from the international community um and you know thus far it's been mostly rhetorical i mean that we have had economic yeah. sanctions in recent yeah. years and, and you you see this kind of pushing and testing stress testing of the west all the time and of the united states in particular in the uk uh, and it's a real conundrum for for policymakers for the eu for paris for london for Berlin, how the hell do you respond to what, in essence, is a rogue state run by someone who's on a almost messianic journey? I, I would argue, as he as he conceptualizes it, to restore Russian greatness. Mm. It, it's it's a real and it's a present problem. And that's how you interpret it. That really the Russian state is opportunistic under Putin. That there isn't some grand plan. Well, I, I mean, that the, there are strategic priorities which you can identify. I mean, the point about Putin is that he is um, he, he's defined by the KGB. That's how he sees the world. It's a, a prioristic view where where the West is an eternal enemy, where the United States is is you know what the KGB used to call the Glavni Protivnik, which means the main adversary, and and the UK yeah. is a sort of satellite of the United States, um, and. He sees geopolitics, he sees international relations in zero-sum terms. He's not interested in mutual solutions. He's not interested in, in, in getting together with other world leaders and, and solving strategic problems. He, he just sees things in adversarial terms, and what is bad for the US is good for Russia and vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. And he also sees things in terms of, sort of spheres of influence. I mean, it's a very 19th century vision where Russia has privileged interests in, yeah. in post-Soviet countries like Ukraine, he doesn't really believe Ukraine is a country, and and in Eastern Europe um, more 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 generally, and and that poses a huge problem for an international community that sort of, despite the populism that we've seen in recent years and the rise of Trump and Co, sort of believes in universal values and the idea that countries should decide for themselves what what to do in terms of domestic politics and international alliances. Do you have a sense? after spending so much time there and thinking about it for so long and reporting, do you have a sense of what the pushback could conceivably be? Because a military pushback is out of the question, and you see that there isn't political will in Europe or in the US for that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a good question. I mean, what, what you have to understand is that there's a sort of, there's a sort of profound difference between um, the sort of lifestyle that bureaucrats in the late Soviet Union could expect where where they would have privileges, they would have a limousine, perhaps they would have a 
bigger apartment in 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 Moscow with a with a with a slightly higher ceiling. They would stay on a luxury dacha on the Black Sea coast or go to Bulgaria, etc. And what Putin and the people around him now expect? I mean, after two decades. Putin's friends are all, without exception, billionaires. Mm. Um, people he knew from childhood have, have become supremely rich and very often serve the function of, of, of proxies for his own for, for his own personal wealth. And and so, what we're dealing with is is a, a massive kleptocracy with a state you know with a state attached. And so the the point is actually that the, the Western toolbox yeah. is, is quite big because if you bar all of the oligarchs around Putin and and top Kremlin officials from traveling to the West, from having Western bank accounts, from going to Monaco or London or New York, that or Switzerland, that really causes them pain. So I think I think there are things the West could do, but it's a question of collective will and political resolve. And I, I don't it, at the moment really see that. It causes them pain, Luke. But I mean, in what way could that influence Putin? I mean, he sits at the apex of this system and he could dismiss these billionaires easily. Or as we've seen in, in the case of some of their, some of the billionaires, kill them outright. Yeah, but 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 actually uh, their money is Putin's money. And Putin, you, you know, R Russia is sort of globalized. I mean, I, I, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the last few years uh, sifting through these um, offshore mega leaks, the, the Panama Papers in 2016, Paradise Papers, a bit after that, and most recently the Pandora Papers. And, and what, mm. what you conclude, I mean, the corollary of, of those investigations is that the people at the top of Russian power um, are, well, first of all, they're, they're superbly rich, as I said, but also they're integrated into Western financial structures. You know, they have secret bank accounts in Switzerland with, mm. with private banks there or with HSBC. I mean, Putin's money, a lot of it, or some of it that I found recently was managed out of Monaco by, by mm. a British guy. You know, that they are in the Isle of Man, they're in Panama, they're in the British Virgin Islands. So, so there are things that, that, that we, by which I mean the West loosely speaking, could do, but, 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 that right. requires leadership and vision and people who, who pay attention to detail. And I don't much see that, certainly in the UK, um, yeah, I mean the pay attention to, yeah, the pay attention to detail obviously is uh, our man Boris. But I mean, if you think about just the last few leaders in the UK, for example, it doesn't feel as if any of them really were all that interested. Um, Theresa May was busy. Cameron was much more interested in China. It feels like you have to go quite a long way into the past before you find people who might have confronted um, Putin and and taken the threat seriously. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think that's right as, as an argument. And, and more than that, the problem we've seen is that that what, what Putin does, I mean, if you look at the sort of pan-European picture, I mean, in, in, in uh, the sort of 70s and 80s, the KGB would, would basically, its main sort of vector was communist parties, European communist parties in France, Italy, wherever, and fellow travelers to some degree in the UK. Um, and, and now his outreach or his spy agency's outreach is, is to the hard right, the xenophobic, nationalist, anti-EU parties, whether it's the Alliance for Deutschland in Germany, whether it's Marine Le Pen in, in, in France, whether it's a whole host of, of you know, quasi-fascist parties in, in uh, you know, the, the Western Balkans or Slovakia or wherever. Yeah. Um, and um, um, what, what he does is what he's realized or, or intuited is is that politics in Western societies is a sort of soft way and it's a soft underbelly. Um, and mm. what we've seen in, 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 in London is we've seen 
huge donations, millions and millions of pounds from a very small group of Moscow-born or Moscow-connected emigre Russians who really, without giving any kind of great explanation, have been shoveling huge sums of money into the Conservative Party. And what we have to understand is... Particularly the the Conservative Party. Well, yeah, basically the Conservative Party. The Kremlin was all in for Brexit. They see Brexit as as a great coup because... It diminishes the UK, it severely weakens the EU, it causes fissures between London and Paris, and you know, bring it on. So so the Johnsonian mm. faction is is the faction that the the actually Russia has been supporting and cultivating for a long time, which is not to say that people don't vote for it anyway for their own reasons. Sure. But sure. But do you exacerbate but something that's there? Exacerbate something. And, you know, the Russians would be very happy if Boris Johnson wins again and stays in power for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, because they see him as an agent of chaos, a bit like Donald Trump in the US. Um, and, yeah, what's not to like? It's so interesting to think about it because actually, you know, when you think about the amount of hard power that Britain can bring to bear, in actual fact, it's using very little of it. Even political capital in trying to, say, rally other European countries, it doesn't feel as if there is anybody who is interested in taking the threat as seriously as the Kremlin is is pushing out against it. If you think about, I mean, the, the politics... It's a good explanation, the politics being the soft underbelly. That is a very easy way to influence all these disparate countries all across Europe uh, without without your fingerprints being on it and there being a, a very obvious grand plan. Yeah, and and, and just the, the other sort of big picture thing to say is that, as I made clear, you know, Putin is not a, 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 a universal genius. I mean, you don't want to over-attribute agency to him, but but he has a gift for sort of sniffing out weakness in the enemy camp and for sort of exploiting and instrumentalizing divisions which exist. So, yeah. so you know, Putin didn't invent the divisions in the United States, which have actually got worse since 2016, nor, nor did he um, author the sort of you know, pretty profound disillusionment in some provincial poor communities to, towards government, which in part led to, to, to Brexit. But what, what he does is he's like the arsonist who, when everybody is distracted, walks past the bonfire, tips uh, half, a, half a can of kerosene you know, onto the flames and then strolls off so that it burns even brighter. And, yeah. and that's what we see through social media. That's what we see through these troll operations, which are still going. I mean, they've sort of been exposed, but but they're very much out there. There's a and what we've seen recently with the Russians, you know, uh, pumping out anti-vax information yeah. as well, because it's another way you can divide and weaken the enemy. And he really does see this as a kind of martial conflict. It's a sort of do, semi-war. Do feel, yeah. Do you feel that any of that cuts through to the general public? I mean, we you talked about you know, the Kremlin papers, and that was a big story for The Guardian over the summer. But do you feel that it has some sort of cut through to the general public? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, yes, yes and no. Funny enough, I was in a kind of pub last night uh, talking about this. And also I was doing, um, uh, I, I did a, I, I beamed into a Ukrainian investigative journalist uh, conference and was was chit-chatting with a, with a colleague from Canada um, who'd, who'd been part of the Pandora Papers. And he was saying, look, we do all this great reporting. We spend it. We spend a year on it, and it doesn't really land. Um, it, 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 in the sense that yeah, actually it's hugely read, and and the Guardian had massive traffic. Our print sales jumped. We got donations from readers who are who actually really appreciate our, our investigative journalism. But it doesn't change policy 
necessarily. But but my, my response was, if not us, then who? I mean, who, who else is going to do this? And I think to some extent, journalists like myself, like Catherine Belton, who's written a brilliant book called Putin's People and is currently being sued by Roman Abramovich, a Russian oligarch, or Karl Cadwallader, my colleague from The Observer who exposed the, face, the um, Cambridge Analytica scandal. I mean, I think we sort of slipped into that space which politics hasn't fully fully kind of filled. But, but you know, to, to, I mean, two things. One is there are politicians, including a few within the Conservative Party who are exercised and energized by the the growing threat from Russia and to some extent from, from China. They, they get it. It would be wrong to say that politicians are all stupid or in denial. I mean, some some get it, some worry about it, some are, some are interested in it. And mm. also the other thing is, you know, with Shadow State, I've been doing a lot of literary festivals um, since the kind of, since it became a bit easier to kind of travel around in the, in the summer. And, you, you know, I always... And I say this not for reasons of vainglory, but I always sell out. There's always a big crowd and people are interested. I mean, there is an engaged intelligence audience, mm. intelligent audience out there who are concerned by the, the populist drift of our politics, concerned about the, the threats from Russia, concerned about what, what's happening to, to truth, almost the sort of epistemological question or, or the nature of reality in a time when we seem to be ruled or, or part ruled by liars um so so that there is anxiety there there is curiosity and i don't think we should give up or feel demoralized or or roll over how do you interpret the reaction in the u.s i mean it, it seems like the trump russia evidence just goes through the same cycle you know some new piece will come out trump will deny it russia will deny it and in the end there's just enough of a question mark next to the details that nothing really sticks well, I mean, I don't think that's true. I mean, I mean, the the, the book I wrote, Collusion, were, uh, okay, it came out in 2017, but it was a New York Times bestseller. I mean, a lot of people bought it, a lot of people read it. Um, and, you know, m m much of what was in there was to, to some some extent covered by by Robert Mueller in his re his report, um, uh, which, I mean, by the way, was, was was pretty disappointing, but at least proved the the... The, the 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 scale the systemic scale of of Russian interference in in 2016 and since then we've had the the um, Senate Intelligence Committee report um, which um, came out um, uh, sort of just over a year ago which was even more kind of exhaustive and and set out further evidence that the, the problem is there's now a kind of group of people in the US, whether they're on the far left or they're just sort of pro-Trump people who um, are not interested in evidence. They they just know what their version of reality is and they mm. spend all their time kind of shouting about it. Whereas actually, um, the, the more we learn, the, the more we know that, that the Kremlin did interfere and, and actually, you know, sending out sort of tweets on social media doesn't change that. It, that it, it happens. Reality. It happened, it happened, it happened. Mm. And... If and when the Putin regime goes down, we we may or may not get the other half of the story because a huge number of people in Moscow were involved in that operation and, and in other comparable operations. What were you disappointed by in the Mueller investigation? Um, there's no effort by Robert Mueller to follow Donald Trump's money. Um, and, and basically, his, I mean, I've talked to people who who first heard the name Donald Trump in the early 1990s in Moscow. I'm talking about Russians because my... my you know, I've always come at this from the Russian side rather than the American side. Uh, and, you know, back in about 1991, 1992, you know, it was pretty well known in Moscow that you could you could turn up 
um, in Trump Tower with a million dollars in cash and you could buy a condominium. That was his business model. Um, <laughs> and, um, you, you know, the, the, the fact that the, the, the very erratic and strange lending to him by Deutsche Bank was never cleared up. I mean, that was why I first got into that story, because there was an allegation that VTB, the Russian state bank, had underwritten those loans. I mean, that, that you know, the head of VTB, whom I've interviewed, has denied that. That's also in shadow state, mm. just for the record. But, but you know, the, these kind of murky financial flows, the Eastern European connection, Mueller just decided not to go there. And generally, he was very, very conservative and and and, and circumspect in his approach. I mean, what the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, report told us was that. Um, that when when Trump was in, staying in the Ritz Carlton Hotel in 2013 for the Miss Universe beauty pageant, of course, there's a famous dossier by Christopher Steele says that he was videoed there um, and, yeah. and compromised. Well, the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee said, "Yeah, there's a full-time FSB intelligence officer in the hotel. There are cameras in guest bedrooms. He's got access to to rosters. He knows who's who." So the point is, despite what the denialists say, there will be a tape of Donald Trump, probably multiple tapes that the FSB has. What, what they show, we don't know. But the key point about that is that Donald Trump knows, you know, what, 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 mm. what, what went on during his multiple trips to Russia, including before 2013. And Vladimir Putin knows. Uh, and Trump knows that Putin knows. Um, mm. and, and so uh, e e even if there's no direct threat, which I think there wouldn't be from Putin, because he's quite a subtle operator, that, that inflects of course, the it relationship. Is, yeah. sure. And I think it possibly explains why the one consistent theme of Trump's otherwise chaotic and dysfunctional presidency was his sucking upness to Putin, which just, you know, continued for four mm. years. And if he comes back in 2024, we'll continue again. I, I confidently predict it here, Faisal. <laughs> and somebody like Trump, of course, I mean, he's not the sort of person to say, look, I don't care about being compromised. The country comes first above my my vanity. He's not that kind of person at all. Well, I, I mean, I mean, it's not that, you know, I, I don't think I, I don't I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but but I, I you know, Putin, Putin, I think, managed Trump uh, during those years uh, in the way that a, a sort of senior KGB officer would manage a uh, prestigious and high value asset. And I, I think he basically flattered him. And And when they had these strange meetings in Helsinki, you know, and other, you know, private bilateral chats where we never got a readout. Yeah. I'm pretty certain he said, look, you know, Donald, we think you're a great businessman. You know, we in Russia admire you. We respect you. And by the way, you are surrounded by opprobrious forces and evil liberals who want to, you know, bring you down. But, I, you know, I will be with you, Donald, until the end. I am your rock. Mm. And, you know, he feeds them all of this, you know, quite primitive uh material and then trump comes out and says you know i believe vladimir that the russians didn't interfere uh in the election um and but behind that behind that velvet glove of flattery there's also this sort of iron fist of having the the tapes and well and also the the money you know if if, if there money. is money that that, that if there are money flows obviously Putin will know about them. I mean, Trump yeah, may have yeah. forgotten, but but he could be reminded. <laughs> possible, yeah. Yeah, he could be reminded, exactly. Um, I wonder if you think, I mean, politically, time is running out for the, the American public to really understand that. I mean, if Trump runs again, there's a chance he might run again, there's a chance he might win. If all of this comes out after his second term, to some degree, it doesn't make any difference politically. I, I don't think any of this makes any difference 
politically anymore. I, I, I really don't. Um, I mean, you know, we, we published actually a very important story earlier this year, the Kremlin Papers, you alluded to earlier on, which was um, um, a, a, a document from the Security Council, which laid out in 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 sort of clerical prose and bureaucratic detail a kind of the, the sort of the, the kind of operation which we actually saw in 2016 and and strongly suggested that, that the security council had signed off on this and what was fascinating about the document was that it was it was written it was written by the, the presidential analytical service in moscow in in complete defensive terms in other words there was no suggestion that russia was behaving aggressively it was all framed as countermeasures against uh, economic sanctions inflicted by the Americans and satellite countries on Moscow. So uh, as a sort of as a sort of snapshot into Russian strategic thinking, it was it was quite interesting. And we, we basically spent six months on the story, mm. um, validating the document, talking to various sources inside the intelligence communities, both in America and the UK. And then we published it. And, and then kind of, uh, you know, the Trump people said, no, it's all fake. It's all fake. And the far left said, oh, it's all fake, it's all fake. I mean, they haven't actually seen this document. Uh, and, and then the sort of carousel moved on. And, and so I sort of think, I mean, the, 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 you know, what I take away from that is it, it, it doesn't matter what would come out at this stage. I mean, even if, if the Trump tape or whatever were yeah. to come out, I don't yeah. think it would uh, push the dial because I think what we're dealing with in, in America now is basically a kind of entrenched cold civil war where everybody knows everything already. In, and you know nobody there are no floating voters where, where people have have vehement opinions um and they either love trump or they loathe trump and and i i, I sort of and nothing will change that nothing no, will change that i don't think no october surprise is going to come 2024 is going to derail him i i don't think it, no well i mean i don't know who's going to win i mean it may just be a kind of money raising exercise for trump i'm not sure but 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 but, but i mean I, yeah I yeah mean, if he were to yeah if he were to to, to win so uh, uh i mean but basically in a way you know the the, the sort of russians that they, they've they've done it you know i mean this this for them that the trump operation in 2016 was probably the greatest espionage operation of all time i mean it's sort of from their perspective it sort of succeeded beyond their wildest expectations mm. certainly hillary clinton thinks that the the moscow cost her the white yes, house she said that yeah she said that publicly mm. um so and they don't need to do much more i mean they can just watch because america is burning it's burning w without them I want to, we've talked a lot about America, but I want to sort of move on to the Middle East a little bit and, and to think a bit about uh, about Syria. On the one hand, I mean, Russia, of course, has intervened in the Syrian civil war. With the, the, it, what, without the Russian intervention, I think the civil war would have ended very differently. On the one hand, the Assad family regime has been this longtime ally of Russia in the region all the way back to the Cold War, and the intervention stabilized that regime. And of course, as a reward, they get military bases and so on and so on. On the other hand, the war is quite unpopular domestically inside Russia, and it doesn't feel like there's an easy way out for Putin. Now this regime in Syria, weakened, but completely reliant on Russian support. So I wonder if you feel that Russia has gained anything really overall from the intervention. I, I mean, I think Russia's gained big time, actually, um, because, first of all, you have to see it again from the kind of Kremlin's perspective. I mean, Putin Putin sees Russia as a resurgent great power and a co-equal to the United States with um, geostrategic interests all over the place. So, so 
for sure in the Middle East, which was, as you say, was a traditional zone of Soviet influence. I mean, Syria, Syria and the Soviet Union were 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 kind of incredibly close, yeah. but also in Africa, in Latin America, the Caribbean, the Western Balkans, wherever you look, Myanmar, Russia has has an interest, and and from from Putin's point of view, the Syria operation. I, I mean, it was. As he would see it, it was a humiliating defeat for for the U.S. Uh, the, the rebels never prevailed. Assad is still there. Um, there are um, sort of military and naval opportunities for, for for Russia in the Middle East, and it's completely entrenched. It's got Tartus, it's got Damascus, it's it's got the, the you know the GRU Russian military intelligence is absolutely embedded. Uh, in Syrian defense structures, yeah. so so it's a kind of you know it's a sort of it's a springboard for other influence operations around the region, um, and and sure, I mean it may be unpopular domestically, but but you know Russia's not a democracy. There's no there's no there's no audit come election time. I mean Putin can 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 quite happily, I think keep keep up the the military um, operation in 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 Syria. I, I don't expect Russia to withdraw anytime soon, and uh, you know I think. They basically see this as a pretty unambiguous victory. Would you have said, in the same way that you said that the the Russian involvement in the U.S. election was you know, a huge victory for them and perceived as such by them? Do you think that they consider the intervention in Syria to be similarly successful? Yes, although I think I think as I said, I think Trump was more of a surprise. I mean, basically, they expected Hillary Clinton to win, and and Trump was going to be the stone in the shoe. I mean, he was going to be the the person who, whenever he stood up said you know she stole the election from me i mean the sort of the, the election stealing narrative was actually all set up for 2016 i mean the fact that trump then after he did lose sort of will and 2020 is, is is by the by but with syria um i mean i think i think it showed russia's advantages i mean putin is a dictator dictators can make decisions quite quickly i mean, I mean if you if you look at the agonizing that that has gone on in the UK. Um, I mean, I'm just just reading Peter Ricketts' book called Hard Choices, um, and and just reminding myself of the the debate, um, uh, uh, you know, in that David Cameron had in the House of Commons after yes. after yeah. um, uh, Assad used um, chemical weapons, and and basically that whole the whole conversation in that in in the British Parliament was was haunted by Iraq and exactly. weapons of mass destruction, and yeah, yeah. in the end. The, and Obama was also very hesitant. I mean, Samantha Powell was a bit more hawkish about intervening in Syria, and in the, in the end, it, it never happened. I mean, beyond a few airstrikes, yeah. the, 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 there was no great um, intervention by the West. And, and meanwhile, Putin was able to intervene decisively and quickly. And there were no de- debates in the Duma because it's not a place for debate. It's <laughs> yeah. a place for rubber stamping what the president wants. And, th- and that's the as difference. You, yeah. And as you say, with the, the American election, that was something they were sort of trying out, whereas a military intervention is something that you know they're much more familiar with. It's a much easier thing to pull off when you have military hardware like Russia. Yeah. And, and, and they, they, they're great believers in four solutions. They like they like military power. They like hard power. And mm. and. Um, you know, I, I myself, I saw Russian tanks in um, Georgia uh, when I was covering the, the the August conflict there in 2008, and I was on the Georgian side, um, and there was an advance basically by, by the Russian military and, and sort of paramilitaries. Um, and at one point, I followed this tank column. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a bit like wacky races and and wondering whether the tanks were going to go on to Tbilisi and actually, you know, topple Saakashvili and... and 
to turn Georgia into some kind of fiefdom. And after about 25 kilometers, they turned left and went somewhere else. And I thought, oh, okay. So, so to, you know, so today Georgia is not flipped. Let, you know, well, that was the, what happens. That was probably the first time that they tried this, this, this sort of poking at the edges of the European Union to see what the response would be. And the response was feeble. And, and, mm. and of course, what happened in Georgia then led on inexorably to, to Ukraine. And I remember after Georgia going to Crimea, I'm writing a sort of hypothetical and, and I thought at the time slightly ludicrous piece of fantasizing about a Russian takeover of Crimea, how easy it would be to, to just, uh, you know, send troops off the boats from Sevastopol and raise the Russian trickler and all the rest of it. And it was almost like a sort of thought experiment. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm not saying that I'm, like I'm not, not Nostradamus or Mystic yeah. Meg, but but three or four years later, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And and again, to do with hard power, the use of hard power is what shifted it. It wasn't the politics of it. It was the, the hard power that made a difference and no response came from the Western world. Yeah. And it's not just hard power. It's also the ability to lie about it, um, lie about what's going on um, it's in, in, in the international arena. I mean, that's the other thing is that that. You know, I'm not sure Angela Merkel has ever told a lie. I mean, she she's just gone. You know, she's just retired last month, right? Um, yeah. Off off the scene as as Chancellor of Germany. Whereas Putin lies every time he opens his mouth, and and so does Dmitry Peskov, his his press guy. His job is to lie, and and the lie you learn about lying in KGB school, uh, and you lie because it. It, it, it discomforts the other side and and um, uh, confuses your opponents and and. It's it's part of what what the Russians call maskarovka, which is kind of masking your real intentions. I mean, will will Putin invade Ukraine? Well, he might do, and no one quite knows whether this is a feint or or, or for real. And and you know, when he stands up and says this is ridiculous, this is hysteria by the West. Of course, we will not invade Ukraine. Well. I mean that's true until it's not true. <laughs> so. well, that, that's I mean, the information part of it is actually a really big part of their worldview because we were talking about this with Nina Yankovic about she she wrote a book um, called How to Lose the Information War and she uses that framing of the Russian intelligence activities um, not as warfare which is something that I think you believe um, but as an important part of their worldview that sending out this level of disinformation is a part of the way that they win in. In, in the political arena yeah absolutely and and i mean well i mean a hybrid war is probably there's you know too too too, 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 too it's too much talked about but but it's it's right insofar as i mean I, I mean i might call it multi-level war or multi-tier war is is that yes you have the hard power you have the tanks you have the shells you have the 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 on-off conflict in in eastern ukraine uh but you have a kind of relentless informational war which is much cheaper mm. actually i mean that, that you know that the the kind of the people who who uh the giu um officers intelligence officers who set up you know who hacked the the dnc in 2016 in america and set up guccifer and you know fed this stuff to kind of credulous far-left american journalists um you know hillary clinton's emails and so on mm. that whole operation probably cost a couple of million dollars mm. you know if you incredibly if you, cheap if you, if you compare, you know, I, I used to watch in Red Square when I was the Moscow correspondent for The Guardian, and, and I never got any invites from these guys at all. They really hated me. Uh, no, no invites to parties or anything like that. But for some reason, they always invited me to the Red Square parade in May and sat me, you know, gave me a very good seat on the, on, on, on the sort of tribune so I could watch these, inter, in, you know, intercontinental Topol missiles wheeling by, which were about 
you know, 30 meters long. I mean, they were enormous <laughs> yeah. and, and cost zillions of, of, of rubles to, to, to build. But actually, you know, you get far more bang for your for your ruble from just having a few kind of clever 20-something hackers who who creep into the Pentagon or, or you know, hack American politics or... I'm sure at some point they'll they'll release Boris Johnson's emails or Keir Starmer's emails or or they will do something. Well, given that um, political given mayhem Boris, much much cheaper than than building a nuclear missile. Given that Boris Johnson seems to have left his email address or his phone number on the internet for the last ten years. By the way, Faisal, for what it's worth, that the Russians would have listened to all of his phone calls, whether it's to his mistress or his other mistress or to his colleagues, so they would have read all of his WhatsApp messages. I mean, all of that would have been intercepted. It's it's very very basic, and the fact that he didn't do basic security, I think, is astonishing. Astonishing, actually. I mean, astonishing that um, not just here, but I mean, astonishing that, that around the Western world, people still don't think that it is as serious as it really is. That the Russians are trying to infiltrate every part of the um, the political life of these countries, and not merely small countries. I mean, not merely small countries like, um, like Estonia, for example, which perhaps doesn't have the cybersecurity infrastructure. They're trying to do it in major countries which have a lot of um, security. Yeah, and also, as I keep on saying, that they're not they're not super geniuses. It, they're opportunists, and, and you know, if, if you have an idiot prime minister who makes it easy <laughs> yeah, for you, then, yeah. then of course, or idiot foreign secretary, <laughs> I think he was at the time. Yeah. Then of course, you take the idiots' correspondence and emails and whatever else you can lay your hands on, and you you because. You know, they would say they would rationalize it by saying, "Well, this is what MI6 does to us, so we'll do it back to them." And if you find a point of weakness, you exploit it. And Boris yeah. Johnson is that point of weakness. He is that point of weakness. Yeah. Now, the apex of weakness. I, I want us to go back to the Middle East because we sort of shifted, but I, I want to go back to Libya because uh, Syria, of course, was the first attempt. And then I wonder if you feel the Russians looked across at the success that they had in Syria and said, "Well, we could just try it again with Libya. Again, not their creation, but when these." civil war lines exist there's no reason not to go in and start um, exploiting them yeah and i actually i reported from libya from from the guardian this is because because the the civil war happened um soon after i got kicked out of russia and so that was my sort of you know big thing and i i went to zintan um and was with the rebels there and as they advanced i advanced uh slightly mm. behind them but it was pretty dangerous uh and then you know got to tripoli pretty early and checked into the hotel uh corinthia on the seafront and you know followed all that um what <laughs> went around saif al-islam's secret underground kind of palace and and bunker uh after it fell and was rifling through his copy of the economist so so i you know i i've sort of tracked libya pretty closely and, and of course it's the same thing it's the same playbook that that russia will support multiple actors uh um it will generally try and sort of align itself with anti-western forces um it's interested in in oil uh, and whatever other concessions Libya might have. Um, and it's got its own strategic interests. And the, these interests do not coincide with the US's interests or the UK's interests or, or, or French interests. Um, mm. And yeah, if, if, there's a, if there's a door ajar in Libya, it will try and walk through. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about your reporting because I'm very interested in the sort of the, the logistics of your time in Russia and you know how you distinguish 
trustworthy sources from untrustworthy ones, false documents from real ones, these sorts of things. It's quite the practicalities of reporting on what is a very secretive world where people are trying to keep things secret, but then people are also trying to obscure what you understand. I wonder how you found that at the very beginning of your time there. Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was very hard to get sources in Russia. And by that, I don't mean kind of, you know, the someone in, inside the corridors of power. But but the problem is that Russia is a place of, of rumor, of um, false rumor, of, of, of disinformation, of... of um, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's chiaroscuro. I mean, it's 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 grey tones all, all, all the way through, and so it's very hard to get a kind of picture of what's going on, especially because, as I said, the Kremlin lies about pretty much everything. So if it says something, then you, you probably you can infer that that the opposite is probably the case. And you know, for example, if let's say let's say a kind of regional mayor is done for corruption and arrested. Um, Yes, he's probably corrupt, but the point is everybody in the system is corrupt. It's a way of um, binding uh, federal and regional elites to to the center and 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 creating loyalty. So so actually, the regional mayor who's arrested, his crime will be something else that you'll probably never find out about. So mm. I, I tried to talk as many people as I could to to journalists, to academics, to sociologists, um, and, and so on. Um, uh, read the newspapers. Um, and the curious thing was, I, I always assumed when I was there that that actually the US UK had much better sources. They they had kind of you know they had access to a better better sort of information flows than we did. And and th- then there was the the leak. You remember Faisal in twenty ten of, of US State Department cables. Yeah. We partnered with WikiLeaks uh, and with um, Spiegel and and Le Mans and and El Pais. <clears throat> and I spent. I spent about three weeks in a bunker reading 3,000 diplomatic cables from uh, sent sent by by the, the American um, embassy in Moscow back to the State Department in Washington. And it turned out that they didn't really have much better sources than I did. We were all talking to the same people, uh, <laughs> one. And two, that they'd come to the same gloomy conclusion that I, that I had, that Russia was, in essence, a sort of mafia state where the FSB spy agency, where uh, organized crime and, and the government had kind of merged into what was essentially a sort of quasi-criminal entity, uh, which was, sure, all about nationalism and great Russia, but essentially about the business of stealing and offshoring the money that they'd stolen. And it was a really kind of gloomy portrait. And since I got booted out, it's got gloomier. Well, before you were booted out, there was a deliberate attempt to make you paranoid, I think. I I wanted to read um, some of the logs of what you wrote um, about your time there. This was, you kept a log of the harassment from the FSB that you experienced. And I just want to read a little bit of it though. Sure. Uh, 29th October, this is 2008. Upper outer right window open, shut when we left. Batteries removed from alarm system in every room in the house. December 2008, central heating disconnected, house freezing, mobile light ringing from under the stairs in the middle of the night, but can't find the source. Ringing continues. 30th January 2009, break-in at the Guardian office, screensaver showing your wife and kids, deleted from my computer, screen locked, keyboard wiped clean. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like living like that. I reported from Syria and the very same things were happening to me. And actually, it wasn't until I read your account of it that I realized that that was what was going on. It was Ah, the first time. 
Faisal, yeah. that's completely fascinating. And, and th- th- there's a reason for that, which is that the, the KGB trained the exactly. Syrian intelligence services. It's the, 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 the Muqabar, right? And, the Muqabar, and, exactly, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so they're, they're all KGB trained. And actually, the Egyptian security services use the same techniques too, also KGB trained. Uh, and the the you know in in the sort of late Cold War, so did the the, the East Germans, the Romanians, etc. The, the these sort of the, the the these Germans actually after I got kicked out, I wrote about this in Mafia State. I went to go and see a former Stasi uh, colonel who who said, uh, yeah, you know, they used this kind of dark psychology. They would do these break ins and intrusions, and they would, for example, they would, you know they break into a a, a a target's Trabant car. And then repark it on the pavement so that when you came back to your car, it was still your car, but it had been subtly moved. And and it's it's a kind of it's yeah. sort of malicious mind games that they do it. And it's yeah, yeah. it's a sort of cheap and deniable form of uh, harassment, really. And th- this uh, this colonel, this Stasi guy, said to me, he said, yeah, it, 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 he, in German it's called Zersetzung, which means sort of decomposition. You try and corrode a target from mm. within. And he said. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 we 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 did it better than the the Russians. We all did it, did it better, but they were more brutal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly worked. I mean, I was extraordinarily uh, frightened. I thought I was uh, forgetting things and so on. Do you think now that you are you in any way threatened by the Russian state? Now, do you look over your shoulder? Are you concerned about, for example, the Salisbury poisoning, things like that? Well, I, I mean. Yes and no. I mean, I mean, no. Insofar as that the the the, the Russian that there's a Kremlin assumption is that any Western correspondent who pitches up in Moscow is a spy. So mm. I must have been working for MI6, and my counterparts in the New York Times, Washington Post are obviously working for the CIA, and, and that's because you know Putin and the people around him mirror think, uh, because in Soviet times, um, correspondents for Itartas or, or Pravda sent abroad to Paris or, or, or you know the California that they actually were KGB officers. You know, using journalistic cover. So the assumption is we're all spies. I mean, it's a bit of a daft fantasy, but the one redeeming thing about that is that generally they don't kill foreign spies; they just harass them and hound them and try and undermine them and discredit them. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't think. I mean, I, I mean, no one quite knows what the rules are anymore. So I'm not saying this with certainty, but I don't think that there's a physical threat. But but what there is is that you know kind of remorseless trolling on social media, and some of this is organic from you know Americans who love Donald Trump and don't like me or think the Russian thing is a hoax and send me hate mail. But a lot of it is not; it's actually kind of fake. Uh, and actually, the most kind of vicious people are sort of uh, you know American sort of pro-Trump, pro-Kremlin apologists who who send me you know send me kind of abuse which I, I kind of don't look at, which is then repeated and amplified by Russian trolls. So so that that is their kind of vector is basically social media. Social media warrior warrioring, if that's a, a a word or an occupation. And I, I just ignore it. I mean, you know, fuck them. But do, do you feel, I mean, I wonder if you feel it takes a toll on you. You've talked in the past. I mean, you were you had a young family when you arrived in Moscow at the beginning. Um, I mean, do you ever feel now, and now you say, you know, you're still getting a lot of harassment online and so on, and we live in an increasingly online world. Do you ever think it seems like a stressful beat and it might be just best to move on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I sometimes think that. But but actually, what what we have to remember is that the real um, heroes in in this dark drama are Russians. I mean, we haven't men- mentioned Alexei Navalny, right? Who's languishing yeah. in jail. They met the Russian opposition leader who was poisoned last summer, you know, summer of 2020 and was uh, arrested 
very predictably when he flew back from Berlin um, in 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 January of, of 2021. Um, and most of his colleagues, um, you know, co-strugglers, activists whom I know pretty well, they're all they're all in jail or they're in exile. Uh, the journalists I work with on the Pandora Papers and, and on the Panama Papers, Russian investigative journalists, many of them called Roman or Roman, uh, <laughs> at least four of them, <laughs> yeah. uh, and they've all fled. And and their organisations, their media websites have, have have been rolled up and um, shut down, and they've been declared foreign agents, um, uh, undesirable, etc. So there's been a real darkening in Russia. Um, and Memorial, the oldest human rights organization dating back to the 1970s, is uh, you know is about to be closed down as well. And 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 so it's it's actually Russians who are most at risk. It's Russians who are risking everything to struggle against the state in in a situation where any kind of dissent against Putin is basically now a crime. It's mm-hmm. been criminalized. It's 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 pretty close to being totalitarian in Russia these days, uh, which is, you know, far worse than I was there. So, so don't worry about me, worry about them. You speak very warmly about Russians. I wonder if you feel that there are parts of the country that you miss or that there are stories, like there are Russian stories away from Russian politics that you think maybe you would have liked to have covered more. Yeah, I mean, I wish I got out of Moscow more. I mean, it was quite, I did, you know, I did do some fun trips. I went to Kamchatka on an 11 hour internal flight and, you know, and and talked to poachers and, uh, you know, wrote about salmon fishing and uh, t- travel to Siberia with my family and, and camp by the Mongolian border in the in the Altai mountains. And, and, I mean, it's a great country. It's, it's a huge country. Um, it has an extraordinary history. It has a intellectual class it has people who talk about ideas who read books um who um it's a bit like being a student you know you'll, you'll stay up until two in the morning talking about the meaning of meaning i mean you you, you form friendships very quickly yeah. you know re- relationships are forged in the cold weather i mean it's there's something gripping and passionate and intellectually kind of vivid about russia because life is cheap life is cheap um you can hire a hitman I mean, it's not the nineties anymore, but but um, y- y- anything is possible, and and the the, the climate is adverse, the politics are adverse, the, the language is wonderful and infuriating. I mean, I learned Russian. I'm still doing Russian lessons, actually, but but um, so I could access people like Ivan Bunin or uh, you know read Chekhov in the original. I, I mean, it's a great great country, just tragically misruled by a small um, clique who are irredeemably stuck in the Cold War and refighting it, um, this time determined to win. Luke Harding, thank you very much. Thank you. You can buy Luke's book, Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West at all good bookshops and follow him on Twitter at LukeHarding1968. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.